Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. The technologies we use determine what it means to be human. Before the Industrial Revolution, for instance, there were no factory workers. The assembly line reimagined what it meant to be a person, how we work and collaborate. It also invented new ways that people could be abused and exploited. Technology has always tweaked what we think we're capable of, as well as what our limits are, the ways we connect with others, and how we relate to the planet. But we rarely stop and ask, what kind of person do we want our technologies to be engineering? What vision of what it means to be human should they reflect? One of the not-so-hidden agendas behind the Evolver podcast is to contribute to a public discussion about the remarkable things humans are actually capable of and how our society can deliberately support the enlightenment of all people, of all beings. There's a lot of activity in this space at the moment, and once it gets your attention, it's hard not to be intrigued, if not outright inspired. So far in this series, we've talked about avenues to enlightenment through meditation, bodywork, yoga, chi, and psychedelics. We've talked with an empath, a biohacker, an expert on flow, an energy healer, a yoga innovator, a shamanic psychotherapist, and a Ram Das devotee in the Hindu lineage, each with their own way of opening channels to connect to source. And all of them emerged from that experience with a visceral sense of the interconnection of all beings and a responsibility for safeguarding the ecosystem and the healthy future of the planet. What if we designed our new technologies with this vision of human potential in mind? This is the path of transformative technology, an approach to innovation that aims to give people tools that can support human well-being and, most interestingly, catalyze expanded states of consciousness. Yes, it is possible to induce a meditative state in someone through a gadget, a computer device that reads your brainwaves, measures your heart rate, senses your perspiration, and, having read the relevant input, delivers to you the proper combination of sounds, visuals, and vibrations. These technologies are still in the early stages, but their potential is profound. And the new kinds of experiences they can offer are only beginning to be developed for both individual self-awareness and for group connection. There's a burgeoning trans-tech scene, much of it centered in the Bay Area around the consciousness-hacking meetups organized by Mikey Siegel and the Transformative Technology Lab at Sophia University, founded by Jeffrey Martin and today's guest, Nicole Bradford. They're also the organizers of the TransTech Conference, now in its third year, that attracts hundreds of innovators and entrepreneurs to Palo Alto in early November. 
Nicole Bradford is the CEO of The Willow Group, an executive director of the Transformative Technology Lab at Sophia University. Prior to becoming a leader in transformative tech, she was a senior executive in video games for major brands including Activision, Blizzard, Disney, and Vivendi Games. Nicole is a graduate of Singularity University and has an MBA from the Wharton School of Business. In today's show, Nicole talks about the potential of digital technology to touch aspects of life that you rarely see mentioned in Wired Magazine or in Gadget at a time when many people seem to be waking up and tapping into something luminous beyond themselves. The question still is, how does that scale? Digital experiences may well be the answer. One of the hazards of being an adult in the world is having your back go out. I have a tricky back, and occasionally it does pop, and the pain is not fun. In those situations, you've just got to rest, and eventually the inflammation will go down. But one of the lucky things about being part of a store that sells herbal remedies like the Alchemist Kitchen is that there's stuff you can find on the shelves when you need it. Evolver is the proud parent of the Alchemist Kitchen, which we describe as a botanical dispensary devoted to the power of plants. Under our own label, Plant Alchemy, we produce a line of CBD products, including an organic CBD balm. And I'll tell you, applying CBD balm topically on the area of my back that was throbbing the most really did cut the pain and quickly. I felt the difference in just a few minutes. CBD, as you probably know, is a remarkable component of the cannabis plant that can have profound effects on your health. Its clinical name is cannabidiol, and unlike THC, the more famous part of the cannabis plant, CBD does not get you high. But it does have many medical benefits, which are being documented in research labs around the world. People are taking CBD for a wide range of conditions, including chronic pain, Crohn's disease, diabetes, anxiety, rheumatoid arthritis, and more. It comes in a variety of forms, including oil that you can take with a dropper or as a vape, or as a topical salve, which is how I've used it for my back. Plant Alchemy CBD is made to be sold in New York City, where cannabis is not yet legal, so it has almost no THC, less than 0.03%, which is the legal limit. You won't get a buzz, but you will get real CBD benefits. Our Plant Alchemy CBD is the highest quality CBD you can get, made from organically and sustainably grown hemp, using living soil organic principles and produced in a state-of-the-art laboratory, free of any residual solvents for the purest oil possible. You can buy Plant Alchemy CBD Balm and our other CBD products online at thealchemistkitchen.com. Thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. Or if you're in New York, come by our space at 21 East 1st Street between 2nd Avenue and the Bowery in Lower Manhattan. In the shop, Mention you heard about The Alchemist Kitchen on the Evolver podcast and get 10% off any herbal remedy. Nicole, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If people only knew one thing, about transformative technology, what should it be? People should know that transformative technology means that we have the ability to support the human mind with technology. 
that we have the ability to elevate human consciousness and that we have the ability to support people and positively support human psychology so that people can have mental health, emotional well-being, and joy. People who work in this category with technology are people who are using technology to expand the mental and emotional capacity of humans. And, you know, this is the exponential well-being. This is exceptional joy. Um, This is the category that I don't think a lot of people are in these days, but it is potentially very possible. And so, you know, across that spectrum, for transformative technology, there are 11 major areas of technology that we look at. Um, They're very closely aligned to what's also called exponential technology. So machine learning and progress and medicine and neuroscience and like all of the exponentials that say a singularity university tracks, these technologies are being used across the spectrum. And there are applications that exist today, as well as things that are things that people are looking for, or people are trying to build that can exist tomorrow. So across this psychological spectrum, there are exponential technologies that allow us to get at, if you kind of envision Maslow's hierarchy, the bottom layers are things that, you know, one traditionally thinks of technology affecting potentially. So, you know, uh, basic human needs and, you know, the physical needs. But the top part of the hierarchy, which many people have considered to be very ephemeral, um, is now accessible uh, via the exponential technologies that give us greater insight. Um, and the ability to measure, stimulate, and influence the human mind in a variety of ways. And so this is a really exciting time because it's not only the brain of the time, you know, the age of the brain, it's the age of the mind. And, um, you know, the the next chapter for humanity is really going to be um, expanding our mental and emotional health and capacity. So when you say human thriving, you're talking about transformational experiences that effectively are like a kind of you know, awakening experiences even. If you look at it through the, the lens of the contemplative practices. Yes, absolutely. The, the, when I describe the, the psychological spectrum, for me, it's sort of like the current state, but transformational experiences could help you at any point, uh, you know, along that to, to move along that spectrum. But, you know, many of the people who are experiencing exponential well-being, who are experiencing human thriving and human flourishing, it also lines up to much of what we've seen through the contemplative practices, you know, and through all of the practices that humans have used across the millennia to, to you know, access these higher states of consciousness. I think there aren't that many people who would expect that technology can have that kind of impact that it can actually lead people to having effectively spiritual experiences. I think a lot of folks would find that surprising. You know, I would say that's a, I, I come across that often, and I think it's a bit of a spiritual bias that, that people have. And it just really comes from, you know, not understanding the, the scope of what's possible. You know, one specific example would be this. One of the things that people describe when you have a, you know, if, if you use the word spiritual as like really empowered meaning making, 
because a lot of spirituality, you know, it's like Yuval Harari says that, you know, religion is a deal and spirituality is a journey. And that journey is about really having a greater awareness of self and then eventually the elimination of self, depending on, you know, what your belief set is. But it does come from higher and higher levels of self-awareness of what is going on for you in the moment. And technology can be very helpful with that. And so that is kind of an example. Can you give an example of a particular technology that's helpful in that way? Well, it would really come from the biosignal. So heart rate variability, galvanic skin response, EEG, are examples of biosignals that move immediately with change in state. Immediately. And so anything that you know reflects that back to the person um, in a way that isn't distracting um, or is a way that's usable to them is something that increases the level of self-awareness. And those are three biosignals that have been understood for a very long period of time. Like we're not talking about the vagus nerve here. We're talking about stuff that has been in labs and universities and hospitals for a very long time. But what technology is allowing is it's getting those signals out of the lab into devices and then also into, you know, things that can very sort of subtly uh, monitor and give feedback. And then I think one of the things that will happen is that people will be able to subscribe to moods if they know that they're going through a particularly stressful time at work. They'll be able to have their smart house and their smart car, you know, support them in being calm. And that would be done through sound, vibration, music, temperature, smell, you know, you come home, your house smells like lavender already, you know, and things like that. And then maybe your smart house has drawn a bath. So these are very basic, you know, to, to go back to the original point of the question, the body, you know, the body communicates what state the person is in comes out through these biosignals, which can be picked up by technology. And all of that can circle back to a greater level of self-awareness of what's actually, not what you think is going on, but what is actually going on because the body's in the present moment. It doesn't even have to be achievement oriented. It could, you know, in this moment, it's sort of like what is going on in this moment. And I would say the sophistication is actually about the subtlety, you know, because I think ultimately, like Joey Ito has this great quote where he says, a hundred years from now, technology should be indistinguishable from nature. And I think that's true. It should all go into the background so that the human to human interactions are in the foreground and you know we should just be supported right so these devices are tracking us in a way where with the right kind of interface available to us we can actually look back and see things that are happening that we may have missed in our own awareness and they can bring yes. attention to the things that we have not noticed yeah so i think you know i think Transformative technology has the ability to resource the purpose problem, uh, which is, you know, what do we do? And uh, Bill Gates, uh, actually, when he was writing a review on Homo Deus, um, said that he was more worried about the purpose problem than automation. The purpose problem is once the level of automation rises, there's lots of estimates on how many jobs are going to go away and what kind. And I've seen everything from 800 million to 47% of all tasks in the current jobs will be done by automation. So that leads to a 
you know, let's, let's be sure to talk about social emotional skilling and why transformative technology is important for the future of work. But within that, you know, no matter how it ends up, whether it's dystopian or utopian, it does mean that we are going to be spending more time in our heads than with our hands. And we're not good at being like, we're going to be being rather than doing. And the Buddha knew that we weren't good at being MIT, when they look at the jobs of the future, knows that we're not good at being because we don't teach the skill sets that are related to being. So we're really not good at being. And so that, you know, but when we're in a being world, because, you know, these technology lines are not going to stop rising, the importance of purpose, of spirituality, of, you know, knowing who we are and how we fit and what we want to create with one another, that is going to become where today it's kind of a luxury and, you know, you do it if you're born into a culture who does it, or, you know, if you have the, you know, the, the luxury of doing it in the future, you know, being good at being is not a luxury. It is a requirement. And a part of that is going to be understanding and coming to think about what your purpose is. And so that is the purpose problem. Personally, I believe we have roughly 10 to 15 years to up level the social and emotional skill set of the human race. And the reason being is because if you look at the stats around when people are predicting, and nobody knows for sure, but when people are predicting, you're really going to see the the major impact of the job shift. It's around 10 to 15 years. And so if we're not in a different place, you're going to see the kind of reactions to change and to reactions to this change where people who are afraid pick strongmen, um, it generates populist movements that then cause social instability. And so it's like we don't have a lot of time and there's just simply aren't enough teachers, mental health practitioners. So these are licensed people who are licensed to treat people with mental health issues around the world. And if you look at the estimate of that the World Health Organization has for the number of people who will just have depression. So one thing, not stress, anxiety, you know, loneliness, which is worse for you than obesity, not any of that, just straight up, um, you know, uh, clinical depression. It's estimated to be the largest disease burden in the world by 2030. And then if you look at the number of people who have these licensed, who are licensed to help people, and the places where those people can get educated and get licensed and the number of years it takes them to get those licenses, you simply can't catch it. It's not catchable one-to-one. It's not catchable without finding a way to amplify these people that's also efficacious to support people. And then so the people who are insistent that only humans can help humans, that only development, growth, you know, connection and support can happen you know, flesh to flesh, they, without realizing it, have also accepted that tens of millions of people every day will go without support. They've made that trade-off without understanding that that's what their insistence, that technology doesn't have a role in human growth and development means. Nicole, how did you get into technology in the first place? What attracted you to a technology? So I... Watch. I have watched Star Trek from the moment I could watch TV. Like I just, I you know, I've loved sci-fi. 
I read a lot of books when I was a kid. I was, you know, uh, all honors student kid, really shy. And so I read and read and read and a big chunk of it was science fiction. And so I watched Star Trek. I longed to explore. I love the promise of science fiction, really good science fiction, which basically is that, you know, humanity can evolve. We can solve a lot of the problems that we have today. And, and we could explore the, you know, the universe and fulfill that fundamental human capacity for curiosity. And so I, I loved that. And I've always loved technology. I've always liked gadgets. And then I got into the video game industry and I was in video games for 14 years. Were you a gamer? Did you get into gaming when you were young? I know I look really young. You do. But I'm older than the way that I'm older than I look. You're so, younger than me. Um, I, you know, I, <laughs> I played games uh, before I got into gaming. Um, and then I got into gaming because I didn't know, like I, I, I was in grad school and, you know, most people approached grad school looking for jobs that would pay off the bill because it wasn't cheap. And I kind of thought differently. I thought that if I, that I should look for something that justified having a bill like that. And I believe that if you, you know, find what you love and you sort of like find something that brings you alive, then the money will follow. I love technology, but I didn't want to do deep infrastructure. Like I didn't want to do at that time, routers and switchers. You know, I didn't want to do that. And that I love storytelling, that I love narrative. And I love this, you know, the, the, the question really of who we are. But I didn't want to do film or TV. I wasn't interested in traditional entertainment. So I would go to the library back when there were libraries. I remember that. I remember libraries. I know, right? With, and, and that the computers or the databases were in the libraries. Okay. <laughs> so I would go to the library and I would type in my keywords and read everything that came up. And I did it for hours every day. And eventually the annual report for EA came up. So I read the forward-looking statements and their description of the environment and that they were in and what they were trying to build. And I was like, this is it. This is gaming is the next evolution of human storytelling. There were very few MBAs in gaming. There were very few direct paths into gaming. Everyone got into gaming because they had a friend in gaming, you know, or they heard about it. Like everyone's progression story was really that they had a friend. And that's how people got into it. Now, there weren't even schools for game development back then. It was purely an apprenticeship business. And so I, you know, worked really hard and got in and started at Disney Interactive as a brand manager. Then I moved on to Vivendi Games and then eventually to Blizzard, where um, I, you know, uh, ultimately ran, operated, I ultimately operated World of Warcraft China. So I ran operations the back end. Amazing. And then I also did uh, go to market. So I did the launches. So I've done like nine nationwide Chinese launches uh, in the six years, five and a half years, plus a little bit of time in Hong Kong um, that I worked for Blizzard. Were you an obsessive gamer ever? Was it something that you loved? I'm a social gamer. What does that mean? It means I like to play with people. It's all about the people. It's really about who else is, is online in the game with you or in the room. Um, either. It's all about, for me, gaming is a method of human connection and human interaction. So you don't have the sense of when you're doing a game that you're isolated alone in your apartment at three o'clock in the morning. You're feeling connected to the other people who are also online 
You know, that's a really big misconception that people have about games. I think you like people look at gamers and they think that they're playing alone. And the most popular games are not solo games. People are playing with other people. Human connection and human interaction is a big part of the draw. It's like the difference between crossword puzzles and backgammon. (laughs) You know, it's like you don't play these things alone. I don't think that relationships have to be physical in order to be valid. And a lot of people think that if it doesn't, if there's not flesh involved, um, it's not a valid relationship. But I think if someone feels loved, respected, that they belong and they feel connected, even if they never meet someone, that is a valid relationship. Do I think it should be their only relationship? No, it shouldn't be their only relationship. But it is, is it a valid, entirely valid relationship? It is. So how is that similar or different from the relationship that, say, in the ancient 20th century, one would have had with a correspondent you sent letters to back and forth? You sit, you write a letter, you send it out, you get a letter back. Is that a real deep social connection? In the same way, does it satisfy the same kinds of social needs as physical proximity, or is it something else? None of this stuff is binary. It's not like you write letters, but you never see anyone. That probably is, you know, it has its challenges, though it can be deeply empowering, like Nelson Mandela. It's not like people are going to have one type of relationship. I just believe that they're all valid. You know, if it is, if it is contributing to one sense of love, support, respect and connection, that it's a valid relationship and equally valid and worthy among the physical relationships that someone should also have. And let me ask you a question. What is your belief about games? Do you believe that they are not valid relationships? I am even older than you. And I have not had... <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> I had my doom moment in 95, where I spent two months completely entranced by a 3D environment where I was a gun walking through a hallway attacking monsters. And it was an extraordinary, you know, sort of consciousness-shifting experience. But I did not stay connected to games after that. Were you playing at a LAN party? Like, were you playing with seven of your friends and you all had, like, custom rigs and you would eat pizza and, like, you know, just wear shorts and, you know, and no one had, you know, you were all, like, pre-puberty? This was significantly post-puberty. Okay. (laughs) So, not really. My sense of connection to people online, whether it's gaming or anything else is really effectively like, you know, email, online forums, Facebook. That kind of connection to other people through digital interfaces is short of the benefit I get from having a physical connection to somebody in the same room or in my neighborhood. It's a very different kind of thing. That's how I experience it. But I know that that's really personal and that other people don't see it that way and that a generation is coming up, two generations have come up, frankly, that don't see it like that. I think the key is diversity in relationships. I definitely don't think that someone should only have online relationships. I don't you know, necessarily have an opinion about someone who only has physical relationships. Um, they probably, if, you know, if someone only has physical relationships and they probably are surrounded by people who look like them, think like them, and have lived in the same place for a long time. That's very real, yeah. So 
there's not a lot of diversity in that relationship or in that person's life to other ways of thinking, being, doing um, in what is an extremely diverse world. I think it should be a mix. And I think a mix of things is, you know, is really healthy. I think one of the, one of the things that is sort of holding us back is, and this is another place where I think differently than other people, um, I don't see a difference between the digital and the physical world. Um, I think there's one world and some parts of it are physical and some parts of it are digital. And I think that the insistence that they're different or that they should be different keeps us from designing them so that they are sort of like unified. And I think it makes us design um, online things to be isolated um, as opposed to saying that, you know, this, this product or this experience, sometimes it's online, sometimes it's offline, and there's bridges that go back and forth between the two. And so I think an insistence that the digital and physical worlds are actually separate, that it's not one world, creates a situation where we underpower the physical world. Uh, when you could actually sort of like bop back and forth between the two. It's why I'm a lot more interested in augmented reality than I am in virtual reality, uh, personally. Um, even though one of the reasons why I got into the video game business was so I could launch the holodeck. Ah, but that yes. aside, I'm the most interested in where people, you know, where the people are at in their lives and, you know, touching that gushy stuff. No, I totally agree with you. I'm in that this, the, the distinction between digital and not digital feels more and more arbitrary to me as these devices appear in every aspect of your life. They don't exist only like, you know, through a laptop interface. You know, they're on your wrist, they're implanted in your body, they're, you know, in every device surrounding you in your house. It's all one continual data flow that is also coming. And as you were saying before, these devices not only creating data, your body is creating data, and it's just a question of what you notice and whether or not you notice something because you've been trained to notice it through your own practice or because you have a device that brings it to your attention is less and less relevant in a way. Would you say so? Yeah, I think that's true. And then also the other thing is, is it's like the way that online can create offline communities you know, I mean, it's like if you think about WeWork buying Meetup or if you think about Amazon building stores, physical stores, you know, it's um, and that's not exactly community. But, you know, if you look at people who are on sort of like the cutting edge of what's happened, everybody's moving towards a straddle position where they do both online and offline. And that's totally. that's like really indicative of like that. That's the future signal. So you were working in gaming. You had this extraordinary position in China with World of Warcraft. Something called you to meditation. For me, I just thought a lot. Like I just, I never stopped thinking. I, like my mind never turned off. And then I did get this sense that it was wearing me out. Like I just, you know, I just got this sense that it was wearing me out. And I had heard that meditation helps with thinking. And so I started meditating. You know, like what kind of practice were you doing at that time? Um, I was doing a variety of, of different things. It didn't really kick in for me until I switched to Vipassana. I didn't understand that I was at a fork in the road when I did that and that it would lead me into a very different life than I had had before. Um, so I, I made the decision really lightly 
to just try something else. I didn't even know what I was doing or really understood what Vipassana was or any of those things. But some friends had gone to a retreat in Japan. I wanted to go to Japan. I wanted to try a retreat. So I signed up for this thing and pretty much had my head blown off. So you did the full 10 days? Yeah. Without much preparation? You just sort of showed up? Yeah, I'm hardcore like that. That's a deep dive. (laughs) In in my life across the board, I tend to, if I'm going to do something, I do it. So what happened for you there? It's like you got to be really careful about this language because so many people have different definitions of what is what. But I had what I call my first awakening at this retreat in the sense that, you know, there's like before the retreat and after the retreat. And my life was fundamentally changed. My perception of life was fundamentally changed. So when you say awakening, so when you say awakening for yourself, what does that mean to you? I guess I'll say the the politically correct use of those words because you know people just go crazy about that word and some other words. You do not need to be politically correct on this podcast. Sure, but there's people who are going to listen to it and they're going to be like, that's not technically an awakening in this particular path on the third set. You know, or whatever. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. All right. Well, so Uh, go ahead. You can start with the political correct way of doing it, and then let's come back around and like offend a few people. Yeah. So, you know, for me, what it was, it was like a fundamental shift in the way I was experiencing reality. You know, I finished the 10 days experiencing extraordinary levels of joy and happiness and very, very low levels of fear, low to no fear. It was amazing to me. And I now in hindsight, you know, now that I know, now that I know a lot of people in the biz, um, I understand it means that I had a decrease in rumination. You know, the human mind, when it's not pushing or pulling, when that voice, that inner voice is not telling you all the things that did go wrong, could go wrong, or all the things that are wrong with you, you're not afraid. And when you're not afraid, you're happy. It's like pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though it seems simple in retrospect. It's never simple, you know, when you're not there yet. Yeah. During those 10 days, was there a moment? Was there a breakthrough? <sighs> or was it a cumulative thing? Absolutely. For me, what happened is I had a, um, I had what is called, and, and the, actually the people who ran the retreat were not the ones who were able to explain to me what happened. It was, um, Years later, I was talking to a woman who actually does near-death. She studies near-death experiences medically and what people say about it. And so I had, um, I had, when I told her what I was doing, she said, oh, you had a living life review. So from about, you know, the middle of day two uh, for five days until the afternoon of day six, I remembered every single memory every single memory of when I had hurt someone else or hurt myself. So I got to see the wake of my life. And there was also correlation to pain with sitting because I never sat like that. And so the sitting pain, it was, I was very physically uncomfortable. And every time I'd have a burst of pain, I'd have a new memory. And, you know, this isn't a Buddhist do no harm context. So, you know, we're not talking about like, you know, like, truly horrible things. But if the bar is do no harm, then, you know, for sure. And so like one memory, I was eight and I was teasing my cousin and he blew it off. And I was something, it was like something harsh that I said very quickly. 
he blew it off. He turned around. The interaction was maybe 90, you know, maybe 30 seconds. But in this memory, the camera unhooked from my perspective and went around to his face. So I could see him crying. And that's when I realized that I had hurt him. Um, the same thing happened. Secrets told, uh, where I told someone's secret, you know, I was like, or moments in my life where I had not spoken up for myself, where I had not defended myself, or where I had not spoken up for someone else. It was like all day, every day, memory after memory after memory, hurting myself or other people. And it was terrible. But you, but you continued it for five days. And at the end of that five-day experience, how did you feel? So the Vipassanas are 10-day retreats. Well, it's like roughly nine days because then they give you a day to de- sort of chill out. So it was like, you know, five days of that from day one to day six. And I went and talked to the teacher and I was like, okay, I need to know if I'm going to be okay. And I need to know if this is common. And she was like, well, it's not common, but you will be okay. And she also said something which I did not understand at the time, but I understand now. She also said, oh, and it's all phenomenology anyway. <laughs> I was like, whatever. It's not like, you know, the retreat center was going to catch on fire or something like that. Like nothing was going to happen. It was all in the mind. It's just, um, so just, it was all, yeah. it was all phenomenology. It's all just time, stuff in your head. Yeah. It's just, it's just your exactly. head. Exactly. Exactly. And so then on the sixth day, I walked outside and there was a, there was a garden, you know, that we would go into during our breaks. And there was a tree that had, it seemed like tens of thousands of bees on it. It was like a, it wasn't a very tall tree and the bees kind of minded their own business, but it was crawling with bees, every branch. And I sat down up underneath and it was just looking up and watching them. And then I had a memory of being three in a kiddie pool and seeing a bee and having this, like my intention, my desire was to save this bee's life because it was drowning. And I scooped it up and I put it on the side of the pool. Having that memory was like, you know, I say it's like Pandora's box with hope at the bottom. You know, it was like, that's when I knew that that was my nature. And then from that moment on, it was all bliss. And I had like the, the next few days were like nothing but like, like extraordinary bliss. And then I walked out of there, you know, different. And so I worked for Blizzard for another nine months and, and I moved back to the U.S. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You walked out of there with a different sense of what the world is about. How did that lead you to think differently about your own job, your what you want to be doing? Well, I, you know, I didn't have a ton of spiritual friends or anything like that. Like I had some friends that I meditated with when we were trying different things, 
in Shanghai, but you know, no one who had any sort of like depth of knowledge. And did you have any kind of spiritual? Did you have any kind of spiritual upbringing as a kid? Did your family have any connection to to any practice? Something that resonated for you? I mean, I was raised Catholic, uh, and I liked it a lot. Uh, but no, no, you know, did you go to church? Uh, certainly not. Yeah, I went to church. I was confirmed and everything. So for you, when you went into the meditation practice, did that feel like it was a continuation of or an extension of your spiritual connection to to what you did when you were young? Or did it feel like a real break and a shift? I don't have an issue with religion. Um, I think religion's done a lot of great things for people. And, you know, religion's also done other things. Um, uh, I, like, I don't have a big thing about religion or Catholicism or, you know, any of those things. I don't even consider myself a Buddhist, even though I follow a Buddhist teacher. I don't have a lot around that. It was, you know, just what I was doing at the time. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, for me, I was raised like such a stringently secular materialist person in a family that had no connection to spirit of any kind that when I began to have my own connection, it was a massive shift. It was a real surprise. I didn't see any of this stuff coming. So, oh, <laughs> I see. So that's, that's why I ask. I believe that humans want um, to be connected. Um, I believe that humans long for transcendence and connection and love and belonging. I believe that there is more, you know, more to this world than we can see. Though I think a great deal of it will be explained by science. Um, and I have the, you know, I have the personality that allows me that I don't need to have all of the answers. Um, I don't have to know absolutely everything. Um, you know, and, you know, so for me, spirituality is, um, I think all of the, the words that people, um, all of the words that people are using, you know, that have, that have created the, the religions and the philosophies and, you know, and all of the things that people do, it's humans trying to get at um, a description of this thing that they feel and that they long for, um, you know, and that they've like come to in a variety of different ways. And it's interesting, the more you know, the more you meditate, the more you practice, the more you experience when you read some of these older, you know, philosophies or writings of, you know, well-known historical figures, um, you can, you know, you begin to understand what it was they were experiencing and what they were trying to communicate about what was possible for the human heart and mind. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not anti-religion. Um, I don't really have necessarily religion. Um, I, you know, I guess you could say I am deeply spiritual, um, but I'm also deeply scientific. Um, and I think it's all the same stuff, uh, just with various degrees of knowing. So what was it about where you found yourself after the Vipassana retreat that led you to want to leave World of Warcraft? I mean, it was just sort of like, I'm an incredibly curious person. Curiosity is my best and my worst trait. It's like gotten me into a bunch of great stuff and all the trouble I ever got into was because of curiosity. So, you know, like that's, that's my thing. And so I, 
you know, I had this fundamental shift. I felt amazing. I wanted everyone that I loved and knew and even people I didn't know to feel that same way. I thought that if humanity could be fearless and happy, which is what I was experiencing, then we could actually solve the problems facing us. Um, and, you know, but I also like, I really wanted to understand what happened to me mentally, emotionally, physiologically, um, you know, and, uh, and spiritually, like I wanted to understand. And so, you know, I did what many people do after an awakening experience, they dive in deep. Uh, and so that's what I did, but I always wanted to have a technology component to it. You know, my response to being at a retreat was not, wow, we should, retreats should be accessible to everyone. It should be, it was like, the world's not going to be able to go on retreat. This was a very luxurious experience to take, to have the, the wherewithal to take off time from work to go and do this. Um, but these tools are really useful. So they should be widely accessible. And the only thing that does, you know, ex widely accessible, scale scalable, affordable is tech. That's it. With that kind of experience, were you wondering what kind of technological tools might be available to help to bring the experience you had in a Vipassana retreat to people who did not have the, the, the luxury of being able to go on Vipassana retreats as you had? Was that a, a clear idea that you were like thinking about at that time? It was just very clear that, you know, it's like very simple that technology is scalable, accessible, affordable. Humanity needs happiness and fearlessness so that we can actually solve the real problems facing us. And so you put those two together and, you know, that seems like the way, that seems like one of the ways that things should be available to people. But who was doing this then? At that time, we're talking about, this must be about a decade ago, more or less. Uh, Jeffrey and Mikey were thinking about it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about these guys. Um, I mean, in the professional world in which you were operating, there was very little attention being given in the tech world to these questions around consciousness, in my experience. And certainly there weren't people talking about it as a potential business area where um, there's going to be a demand for emerging technologies that can really serve this sort of consciousness imperative. A couple of people who were doing that work were Jeffrey Martin and Mikey Siegel. How did you find them? The um, Gino Yu knew that Jeffrey was interested in, um, you know, that he was interested in, he and Mikey were interested in quote unquote engineering enlightenment. Um, and so that's, that's why, you know, Gino introduced me to Jeffrey. How did you know Gino Yu? And who is Gino Yu for those people who don't know who he is? Um, I met Gino at, over a decade ago at the Game Developers Conference in a panel on development, game development in China. And because when I was in business school, I had decided that I wanted to work China at some point in my life, I always went to panels on China. We met, we talked, uh, we got in contact on LinkedIn. I didn't think about him again for another six years until I was thinking about getting a PhD. And I wanted to find a place that would accept my MBA as my, um, and let me go directly to research. And I'd wanted to do something on World of Warcraft community and business. Um, so we chatted a little bit and then I, you know, I started working on the Activision acquisition. 
by Vivendi. Um, so that kind of got put off to the side. And then when I moved to China, uh, I was there for six years. And then when I was in Hong Kong, I saw a friend of mine in a photo with Gino. And that's when I remember Gino was in Hong Kong. And I reached out to him, shared my experience with him. He connected me to Jeffrey. And so Jeffrey Martin and Mikey Siegel were doing a certain kind of uh, exploration of what technology could do. Can you explain to me what it was that they were doing that excited you most, that got you really engaged? I guess, I guess what you could say, I've added to the conversation. You know, I am interested in the full scope of human psychology. I'm interested in, you know, everything from mental health to emotional well-being. Um, the interest in, you know, enlightenment engineering is a subset of human flourishing. But I'm interested in the entire human mind and how we use technology to support the entire human mind. Um, and so, you know, so when I heard about, you know, what they were doing, it was very clear to me that, you know, there should be things that work across everything. Um, and so I, so that's, I guess you could say that's my addition to it. So what they were, what they were working on, as I remember, what they were working on was they were using the name consciousness hacking to describe the work they were doing. Yes. And consciousness hacking is, you know, very, at, at least at that point, it was very much about, you know, like to what end it was very much enlightenment engineering, conscious hacking. Um, it's like, you know, healthy people tweaking things. Um, probably, you know, close ties to quantified self, which is optimization um, as well. It's sort of like the, in, you know, the consciousness part of quantified self. Um, but it's like healthy people doing things you know, to like tweak things and experience more. What did you feel was missing from the work that they were doing? Well, I, I'm interested in the full scope of human psychology. I'm interested in, you know, everything from, you know, mental health, which for me is putting out the fires, to um, well-being, emotional well-being, which I think leads to, you know, a, a path for social-emotional skilling. Uh, which I think uplifts the entire human race. Um, and then there's, you know, human flourishing of which, you know, the, there's a, a subset of that, which is, um, you know, um, quote unquote enlightenment. Um, what's nice about what the contemplatives have done and what all these traditions have done for transformative technology um, or just for really for everyone is that in many areas of human endeavor, um, what is possible is theoretical. Like, what, you know, like what really is the what really is the center of a star made out of, you know, or you know, like like other things. It's like there's things that we 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 know, but like no one's actually been to the center of the sun. Um, but we have lots of models that let us, you know, know what we think is there. Um, you know, with with the human mind and you know, the work of the contemplatives and shamans throughout history is we actually have lots of records, you know, whether it's oral or written about what's possible for the human mind. So we actually know what's possible and what technology does uh, potentially is it gives us the means, not just for the few, because the definition of technology is that it takes what is scarce and makes it abundant. And to make it not for the few, but potentially for 7 billion people, 
but everybody's at a different place. And so you have to meet people where they are with solutions that help them there and then. And so I'm interested in the whole thing. So I am interested in things like, you know, something that would help a, you know, a mom with postpartum depression. Like I'm interested in that. Um, I saw an app the other day that um, is, uh, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a menstrual tracker, but it's actually got your moods uh, throughout the rest of the month. Now that's, that's where, you know, it goes from healthcare or fertility into, you know, transformative technology, because then it becomes about psychology, how you feel, what you think. So that, that sounds like an awesome app. What other examples can you think of? Off the- well, I can tell you the things I'm the most excited about. Um, I'm really excited about, um, I'm really excited about chatbots and voice interfaces. Um, I think we have the ability to use um, technology to do social emotional skilling. Uh, like one example would be, and this isn't a perfect example, but you know the and and it's a very American example. It's not international, but um, there's a children's echo uh, with um, Alexa. And it won't complete a command without please or thank you. And it's because parents were saying, you know, this, this unit is making my children rude because the way that you kind of have to command, you know, that assistant was kind of rude for American culture. Um, and, you know, and I'm not advocating, you know, certain words over other words, but this idea, you know, if you think about how people anthropomorphize you know, Roombas and all of these other things, you know, there isn't any reason why we can't use these things to support us in social emotional skilling. Um, an example would be, you know, one of the most important um, skills for success is meaning making. Um, and it affects how you interpret the things that happen to you in your life. And if you think about psychological well-being, but also success in life, it has a really big impact on it. So um, Thomas Robinson, who's a um, uh, pediatrician at Stanford, was a part of a project where they taught meaning making, uh, an hour and a half intervention to kids at middle school, high school and college. Um, Then they had controls. The teachers didn't know who got what intervention. They um, and they were hands off and then came back in at graduation. And the kids who had gotten the intervention had significantly higher graduation rates, scores, grades, and willingness to go on to the next level. So so that intervention doesn't necessarily have to be, in my opinion, delivered in a workshop setting. You know, if, you know, as AI gets better, as, you know, chat assistance gets better, there isn't any reason why um, if someone has like, you know, if someone has a little personal assistant, because we all will, that, you know, we get challenged with the way that we make meaning out of the things that happen to us so that we can make better meaning for ourselves. And it can have a tangible, fundamental impact on, you know, metrics that the world considers to be oriented around success. So I'm really interested in that. Um, I'm really interested in, um, I'm really interested, like my, my personal thing that I want to know is I think one day we will understand group flow, like group flow, 
So we still like people have a sense of what, you know, individual flow is and people can try and hack it and some other things. And I think eventually people will figure out, you know, what are the biological signals of flow, but there's something about group flow. Um, and I'm really interested in group flow because I think um, human beings long to be together. And I think that people are really going to like group consciousness. And when you look at when a soccer team, you know, we're in the middle of the World Cup, you can see when a team goes into flow. Um, and then also, you know, I've chatted with people who are Navy SEALs. And that flow situation, like on a SEAL team, uh, many people don't know that SEAL teams, uh, the person who, you know, when they're deployed, the person who feels like they know what to do, makes the decision. So they're actually incredibly creative, dynamic, um, you know, adaptive uh, uh, systems where the people feel like they are one. They feel like they are one thing. Um, they're able to know where everyone's at outside of line of sight. Now, maybe they're a little bit wrong, but they feel like they know. Um, and they feel like they're one entity and they call it the merge. And it's, it's uh, and one, you know, one person says they're the most important skill for success on a, on a SEAL team is the ability to merge consciousness. So there is something, we have this ability, but we just can't see it yet. So I think when you look at the proliferation of sensors, the proliferation of cameras, computer vision, data, eventually we will witness this event. Maybe it'll be at the World Cup in a couple of years. We'll witness this event. And once we can see it and track it, then we can hack it. And when we have the ability to make group flow available for teams and teams of teams um, around the world, I think it will change human society. And also, I think our creativity levels will go through the roof because it's not like a lotus eater kind of like, you know, um, you know, master. And, and you know, I was using a, I meant that in a computer way, but where you know, there's like one node that directs them all. That's not how it works. It allows groups of people to become hyper creative. And the reality is that mankind, we have a lot of problems as it relates to energy generation, food production, waste disposal. Those are our existential threats uh, of which we need AI to solve, but we also need people to solve them. And so I think it's going to sort of like change everything. So I'm really excited about, you know, a future thing, people, you know, finding that. Um, and then also what we talked about at the very beginning, um, there are no good products yet that really surface um, the data, your psychological data selfie. When you talk about group flow, the examples you use are people who are in a group collaborating together without any mediated interface facilitating that collaboration and the the studies that I'm aware of that really get into how that happens it's almost like there's a kind of telepathic consciousness connection that happens among the group when they're really in the high state of connection that is almost like a like a it, it's it's a human sensory ability that doesn't necessarily get turned on in most instances because we're not trained to use it, but that in these situations, like with the Navy SEALs, they create exercises that facilitate the emergence of that capability so that it happens without technology. What I'm hearing you say is that we could develop particular technical 
implementation, some kind of cool software or app or something that you wear or something that gives you some information about other people in the group. So you're kind of augmenting human ability through the technology to have that happen within a group. Is that what you're saying? Not exactly. Here's the thing, whether it's meditation and awakening or group flow or any of these abilities that people happen have happened, what they have in common is that they are unreliable, inconsistent for the elite and for a few. Right. Right? And hard. Um, hard you know, to get and, to. Really difficult. And, yeah. And hard. To achieve. You know, and so, you know, what I'm interested in is these things becoming available to all and what that could mean for humanity. So, yes, can you do it on your own and can you like pound through it with, you know, purely flesh on, on a mountaintop with a teacher? Absolutely. Um, and should that disappear as a method for people? Absolutely not. People should always be able to do that. But if we're talking about whether or not the future of the human race, you know, looks more like Hunger Games or more like Starfleet, when the rise of the automation line takes out a ton of jobs and makes people really afraid, then it's really about having more of these skills and abilities distributed throughout the population um, so that people can deal with change and thrive. What always struck me about, about the way that the internet has been working on, in our society is that it gives people a visceral sense of what it is to be connected to everybody else on the planet in real time. Before the internet, that was an abstraction. But that toolkit gave people the sense of what it is to all be part of a unified planet where consciousness is all interconnected through this network, which my sense is has helped create a more general understanding among all people now about how interconnected we really are, with or without the computers. It's almost like a training ground for a certain kind of awareness of our interconnection. So the way you're talking about these kinds of technologies, I wonder if they essentially end up doing similar kinds of things, surfacing latent abilities that many people have but don't actually experience in their own day-to-day -day life because they don't even realize that they're there. But when they start to work with the tool, they can see how they can participate in group flow. And that might make it easier for them to know how to connect to group flow without the tools after they've had that experience. Absolutely. Totally possible. Yeah, there's something really powerful about digital media that way. That it kind of, yeah. it, it opens up, you know, all kinds of uh, avenues about what it is to be human. That the materialist paradigm really has kind of pushed to the fringes. I remember uh, hearing you speak once about a technology that can facilitate telepathy. I mean, it's, it's not telepathy the way that it's sort of like in the books and the movies, but it is brain-to-brain -brain communication, um, you know, facilitated by tech. And so there's a woman named Mary Lou Jepsen who spoke at the conference last year, um, and she has a company called Open Water, which is miniaturizing um, fMRI. And, you know, seven years ago, you could put someone in a MRI tube and have them watch something and reconstruct what they were looking at from the data that was coming off of the brain. She looked at that and thought, oh, that's a resolution problem. Um, and then also she has a history of 
uh, miniaturizing and reducing costs. She was a key member of the $100 laptop uh, program back when laptops were ten dollars to $15,000. And so she's done this before. So now she's doing it for MRI because it's the major block for progress in healthcare and in psychological care um, because it's very expensive to get to these machines if you're doing a study and you know the amount of money you have to spend in order to get subjects into an fMRI is very expensive um, also the you know people only get those tests if they're you know very wealthy to pre-purchase them or if they've got something wrong with them uh, to get better resolution as opposed to getting it in advance so you could detect cancers early and a variety of other things. So Mary Lou decided she wanted to stall, solve that problem. Um, the side effect of solving that problem is that if you had a hat with a miniaturized fMRI in it or a miniaturized MRI in it, then, you know, based off what's already been done, you know, over at this point, actually now nine years ago with the current MRIs, um, you could have someone think a thing. They could visualize a thing, um, truly deeply visualize it, or they could go someplace and look at a thing. Um, and that could be sent to someone else. Um, you know, initially probably just like an airdrop to a phone or eventually potentially to that other person, because if it gets decoded, it can probably get encoded. And so that would be you know, potential for brain-to-brain communication with images. And if you think about the amount of conflict that comes from words, misunderstandings, um, or, you know, in the context of, you know, meditation teachers, they all try to tell you what awakeness and oneness feels like. Uh, but you, or, you know, if it's eyes open, what the world looks like when you're doing it. Um, but it's like the the amount of you know, the amount that, that gets broken up between, as a student, me having to describe to you what my experience is, you as a teacher having to understand, get the gist of what I'm saying, and then you telling me what it's supposed to be like and me getting it. Like, that is a really bad game of telephone. Uh, if you could replace it with direct experience that I get to borrow uh, what it feels like to be you for a moment, so then I can recreate it on my own. That's something that potentially could come out of this. Um, but even if she only, you know, nails a sort of handheld MRI, um, then that already, like the what that's going to do for humanity, is pretty profound. These technologies are so instructive in terms of helping people understand altered states of consciousness or, or, or ways of connecting, you know, to something beyond themselves. Have you had an experience? with a technology that helped you open up in that way? Yeah, I mean, I've done really intensive neuro training, which I enjoyed a lot. I did 40 years of Zen, which I found to be incredibly effective. Um, They call it 40 years of Zen, but it's really kind of like 40 years of therapy in the sense that um, you can actually hear what's happening in the brain, um, you know, while you're generating alpha, theta, or gamma. And then they have a therapist who is like working with you to pull out the content of your life that will give you the most ability to train these different experiences. Um, And I found that incredibly, I found it to be really incredible. Um, I enjoyed it a great deal and it's very useful. And six months later, you know, everything that got resolved there is still resolved. Um, So that was, that was great. Um, I also enjoy, um, 
you know, I also enjoy heart rate variability tracking. I do that. Um, you know, I don't do as, you know, I do a bit of the consumer EEG, um, but I, you know, I have a pretty solid meditation practice, so I don't necessarily use it for meditation, but I'm really excited about um, Interaxon's glasses uh, for EEG tracking um, during regular life. I think that is pretty cool um, that they were able to get their entire unit into glasses that people uh, can wear. Um, I think in terms of like people being able to see what's happening over time and micro shifts and how they, what's going on for them. I think that'll be really useful. Um, I, you know, there's lots of different apps that I use that I like. Uh, my meditation app is insight timer. Um, I like spire. Um, I'm excited about, I've been waiting for the new form factor to buy my aura ring. They've got the best sleep algorithm in the game. Um, like they're just like, I, their product is just fantastic. Um, and so I'm looking forward to getting that. Um, and I've been like waiting for that one. Um, and they finally shipped in July. Uh, so I think that's super cool. Um, I think, you know, there's other trackers that, uh, for mood and psychology that I like, um, you know, so that's kind of like a, a short list of the stuff that I think is awesome. So can you tell me a little bit about the transformative technology lab? Thank you for asking. Um, the transformative technology lab has um, three has has uh, does three things. The first thing is we do basic research. The second thing we do is create community, and the third thing is resources for entrepreneurs. So the uh, basic research is some of Jeffrey's research that you know about. Um, the create community is our conference, the transformative technology conference, which is the largest conference for. Uh, people who are using technology to uh, support the human mind in a variety, in all the ways that we've described. And we're going on to our fourth year. Last year, we had 600 people. Um, and this year is like even, be even better and bigger than it was the year before. Um, and it's because there's this, you know, there's a growth, there's a confluence of events of, you know, the coming together of, need and, and economic demand, uh, demand and behavior change, and then means, just like the technology is accelerating, specifically around what's driving a lot of it is just machine learning and AI. Um, it you know, drives everything. And so um, this is our fourth year for the conference, and then it's our first year for what we call the Transformative Technology Academy. Um, the Academy is September 15th to October 15th. It's online completely free, no fee, no equity. Um, and it's an online program to help either entrepreneurs who have products that are designed to help people in the way I've described or innovators. Um, so these could be people who are still at companies um, who don't know what they'd like to build yet. Um, and to help both of these types of people um, with you know, understanding the transformative technology space um, getting, you know, mentors in many cases. Um, and also we're adding a piece of personal development, uh, where we have the coaches who coach Slack and Dropbox who, and other, you know, uh, batches out of tech stars who are doing a, um, a one month program alongside of it 
and in, integrated into it where everyone who finishes will have um, have thought about their values, beliefs, and blind spots. Uh, because I believe that you know transformative technology is so powerful that um, you know and and regulation isn't necessarily the right tool, and, and in any case, it won't be fast enough. Um, that the real you know, place to help people think about what they're building is to, you know, work with the entrepreneurs themselves to really think about what it is they're building. Um, and so we have this great online program. It's one month. Um, it's about, you know, for the entire week, it's about, uh, it's on the weekends with some things during the week. So it's something that's manageable for people. Um, and then we will invite the top 10 companies from that. Um, to pitch on stage at the conference, which is November 9th and 10th, in front of investors. Um, and so it's, you know, the, this academy is the third part of our mission to resource entrepreneurs because I think that humanity is really diverse. There won't be one in solution. Um, and so we need sort of as many people out there building things to help people um, as possible um, so that, you know, the ones who, you know, there will be there will be some that are more successful than others, um, and because we're going to have that natural sort of attrition that happens with company building and product launching. Um, but I think you know, the more people who try, the more people will succeed, and the more things that humans will have uh, to support um, them mentally and emotionally. You said in a speech that I saw a lecture that you gave the quote: "The technology is on an exponential curve, but human development." is not. Yes. And that much of the work that you're doing is focusing on closing this gap. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, we still do human development the old-fashioned way when we do it at all. Um, and it's this, you know, very slow one-to-one uh, way without, you know, without personalized sort of like very precise feedback loops. And, um, you know, it's in a very not scalable way. It requires that you have the right parents, the right teachers, the right community. Um, the institutions that once did it, some kind of like teaching people how to be human were sort of like the religions, governments and institutions of higher education, which if you look at the Gallup, I mean, if you look at the Edelman Trust Index, um, around the world, people trust these organizations less than they ever have. And so the things that we used to rely on to teach us, to give us some idea of how to be, you know, aren't trusted in the way that they used to. Um, there's a hell of a lot of um, variability um, in, you know, the skills and access to like good tools on how to be human. And um, so there's a there's a, a huge gap. Meanwhile, all of our technologies um, are on exponential curves, and so this gap between the two is very dangerous. Um, and now that you know, now that um, the gap is going to feed into um, you know a change in sort of like the economic structure of work, um, we're getting to a place where uh, we can't not grow. Um, you know, if we want to have an abundant society. Yeah. yeah, human growth is going to be key in all of this. The work that you're doing is really so on point and visionary. And I got to tell you how much I appreciate it. Really exciting. Thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us today and sharing with us 
what you're doing with transformative tech and what you're planning to be doing in the future. Really appreciate it. Can you tell us where to find out more about what you're doing? Yes, um, you can find out more about the conference at uh, ttconf.org. And then the academy is at ttacademy.co. And then the lab is at uh, transtechlab.org. Thank you very much. Thank you. No one really knows where technology is going to go and what it's going to do. If you could read the future of technology, then Facebook would not have elected Donald Trump president. But the gadgets that we invent have unintended consequences. And at the same time, they introduce new possibilities that were never imagined in the first place. For instance, when they invented the movie camera back in the 19th century, nobody was envisioning the close-up. The idea of a disembodied head on the screen was just too freaky for them to conceive of. It took two generations, really, before that became possible. In the same way, transformative tech is offering a possibility for a way to help people go through awakening experiences, but we don't know where this is going to go or what's going to work and what's not going to work. The more we learn about how people have those kinds of crack-in-the-sky moments, the more we can develop support structures for them and enable them to go through these things in a way that can really resonate and be grounded. Digital technology may well be a part of that. It remains to be seen. I want to thank Nicole Bradford again for being a part of the show and for joining us to talk about these questions. If these questions resonate for you, I recommend that you check out the Transformative Tech Conference in Palo Alto this November. And I'm going to thank you all for being part of this. If you like what we're doing here on The Evolver, please tell your friends. We want to hear from you too. Write us an email at theevolver at evolver.net. That's theevolver at evolver.net. Please, if you can, also post on iTunes a little comment or a review. It actually goes a long way in helping other people discover what we're up to. You can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at The Evolver Social Movement. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu, from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and Here for a Moment, on the album Gone, Gone, Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.